Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kamala Harris will be America's first woman, first black, and first Asian vice president. But she will not be the first person of color to serve as VP. Who was? And how long does it take a snowflake? To fall to earth from its cloud. Marsha, I didn't want to get political here. (laughs) (laughs) Answers to those and other questions coming up in this edition of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, we enter a new year, 2021, and this year, Kamala Harris will be America's first woman, first black, and first Asian vice president. She will not, however, be the first person of color to serve as vice president. Who was? Who was? Okay. Tick, 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 tick. First person of color. Mm -hmm. Were they African-American? No. Okay. All right. Then I have no idea. It was Charles Curtis. He was a Native American lawmaker. We had a Native American or an Indian vice president in the late 1920s and early 30s. Did you know that? (laughs) I did not know that. I didn't either. He was a member of the Kansas Caw Nation, and he served as vice president under Herbert Hoover. And the two were elected to office in 1928. He grew up in North Topeka, Kansas. He was born to a white father and a one-quarter Caw Indian mother. I'll be darned. Yeah. Can I tell you one more thing about him? Oh, go ahead. He had a link to a great event in 1804 in American history. Do you have any idea what that might have been? A link to 1804? Uh-huh. And that was a great exploration. The Pacific Northwest? No. Yeah. The who, What was the... The... Uh, the uh, what you call it? And what you call Lewis it? Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Okay. He was the great great grandson of White Plume, a Caw chief who offered to help the Lewis and Clark expedition, along with Sacagawea. Yeah. Uh huh. Isn't that interesting? Yes. He had a career as an attorney. Then he was elected to Congress in 1892. He served in the House and the Senate. He actually ran for president. 
Did you know that? No. An Indian ran for president. In 1928, he lost his bid for the presidential nomination to Herbert Hoover, and then he tapped him as his running mate. That's how he got on the ticket. I'll be darned. But he was actually a candidate for president. So, Bob, let's get up to the clouds. How long does it take a snowflake to fall from a cloud? <laughs> no, Come that's on. a political term people use. Oh, my goodness. But we're not talking yes. about We're talking about we're real talking snowflakes. We're talking real snowflakes. Just give me a minute's estimate. How long does it take once it falls from the cloud to get to Earth? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, now they fly through the air. They're very light. I think it'd take a little while. I bet it takes two minutes to get from a cloud to the Earth. Yeah. You know, I was thinking the same thing, but nay. It is 45 minutes minimum. Really? Yeah, yeah. So snowflakes it's, last for 45 minutes yeah, from the cloud to well, the ground? If it's not odd, I imagine. Uh, wow. The climatologist Nolan Doskin states the vast majority of snowflakes fall at speeds between one to six feet per second. Hmm. In a typical winter storm, snowflakes begin their descent from a cloud layer about 10,000 feet above the ground. Assuming an average fall speed of 3.5 feet per second, it takes more than 45 minutes to reach the Earth. Yeah, I would have thought a lot less. That is amazing. I had no idea it'd take that long. Yeah. That they would last that long. Yeah, it's usually know? about an hour, actually. Wow. Okay, I have a question for you, okay? Sure. What bird can... <laughs> Isn't well, that the point of this that show, That is Bob? kind of the point of this show. <laughs> Let's top each other with questions. I'm going into one of your areas of expertise, yeah. animal questions, Marsh. <laughs> so, what bird can fly without stopping for more than 2,000 miles, and why is it a good thing he can go such a distance? <laughs> <laughs> Two-part question. <laughs> two-part question. This is the lightning yeah. round, Marsha. Oh, the two-part question. You got that little smug schoolboy look on your face. I know uh, the answer, teacher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> God. Okay. Uh, Again, what can fly without right. stopping? I will say uh, that's a long time. So it's not the it's not the things that fly over our house all the time. It's the no. wonderful Canadian geese. geese. No. Uh-uh. That's too far for them. So it'd have to be smaller. I don't know. Swallows going to Capistrano. That sounds. Wrong to me. Uh, you probably never heard of this. I never heard of this bird. It's called a curlew. Now keep in mind, C-U-R-L-E-W, the curlew. It's the bird. Most of his flights are over water. Why is it a good thing he can go 2,000 miles without stopping? Because he can't swim. He can't swim. I wonder what it looks like. All right. Okay, here's a question I asked you last night, Bob, and uh, you didn't know, so I said, I'm going to save it for today. And then I went to Wikipedia. No, <laughs> no, didn't, no, did I didn't. Okay. No, no. What is a mass observationist diarist? A mass observationist diarist. Is that another term for a reporter? No, but that's a good guess. Because, uh, you know, somebody who's looking at things and, and yeah. journaling about it. Yeah. I don't know. What's the answer? I bet uh, our friends in England listening to the show know. I'm reading, as you know, The Splendid in the Vile by Eric uh, Larson, and it takes place with Churchill during World War II and Hitler's invading. And as our daughter said, <laughs> this is what I read to cheer me up uh, during the political turmoil of this time. <laughs> but uh, World anyway, War II. Uh, yeah. Nazi bombing of yeah. London. Okay. But back in 1937... Uh, England got this great idea. It was actually during the abdication of that king who went off with his uh, woman to America. Yes, Edward. Edward, uh, yeah. Well, it was decided at that time it would be interesting to have the general public's observation of general things. 
just regular everyday people, not historians, not uh, politicians. And not reporters or journalists. Right. It's the thoughts and feelings of everyday people at any given time and their opinions. They write in a diary. They're given diaries. It's called Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) It is. No, okay. But these are kept in the Mass Observation Archive of the University of Sussex and are turned in there. And you can go read over 75 years on and off. People have been just doing everyday observations of everyday things. And they diary it, uh, put it in the diary. You know, the bombs are falling, World War II. Oh. Or, uh, and they, people, and use this as research, it's certainly in the book that I'm reading now, as how the general public was thinking about any given event at the time. Well, that's a great idea. Yeah, I would have never, ever thought of that. And they could digitize all those uh, texts so they could, you know, they're in text form. So they could digitize all that information. That reminds me of the Library of Congress in the 30s and 40s started recording people. There are recordings of people the morning after Pearl Harbor on the streets asking them what they thought of it. Yeah, and mass observation sought to bridge the gap between how the media represented public opinion and what ordinary folk actually felt and thought. So this is something that's still going on? Still going on. It started in 37, stopped in the mid-60s, and then started up again in 81, and it's still going on. Wow, in England. Yeah. Huh. Okay, and what's the term for the person again? Mass observationist. Diarist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mouthful. The MOD is what it is. Yeah. Okay. All right, Marcia, here's one for you. As we are all in still some form of lockdown, almost a year after COVID began, people are always having trouble with exercises, getting enough exercise. What popular exercise device was originally invented to torture prisoners? <laughs> Yeah, honest to God. It's not what you have in the basement, is it? A slant board? No, no, no. No, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me board. think. Uh, uh, gosh, I don't know. What? The treadmill. Oh, and they kept going faster and faster You and think faster. it's torture? You're right. It was invented as a punishment for English prisoners. Oh, those English just know how to oh, do they everything. Did, didn't they did, yeah. So this was invented by a guy named Sir William Cubitt, the English engineer. He invented it in 1818. It was called the Discipline Mill. <laughs> It was invented to occupy the time of prisoners sentenced to hard labor. Unlike you, they couldn't jump off when they decided they were done with their (laughs) treadmill. I jump a lot. Man, in those days, 10 to 20 prisoners stood on a long wooden wheel affixed to 24 tread boards and around its circumference, and the prisoners would grip a horizontal bar for support, and then they stepped in unison, pushing the wheel around in exactly the same way a river moves a water wheel. Did it keep going faster and faster? No, they just kept it going. They had to do it for hours and hours at a time. Bet you they were thin. It took two revolutions a minute, and the space stepped over by each man was 2,193 feet or 731 yards per hour. Now, while the wheel was used mainly as a form of punishment, one wheel at Brixton Prison was used to crush grain. So oh, that, that makes sense. That's it... how they got the name Mill, a tread oh, mill. Really? That's how they got the original well, see, name. see, I love form and function, so that had a good... <laughs> but, a good but they purpose. don't have form and function like that at the gym. No, <laughs> no, so, you're just going nowhere. So the treadmill was originally invented to torture prisoners, and that means these were people who didn't have to worry about burning too few calories. They just had to worry about burning up too many and dying from exhaustion. Yeah. <laughs> Always a problem. Okay, <laughs> not in this house, but all right. What is, Bob, the shortest unit of time ever recorded? So it would have to be a fraction of a second then. Oh, yes. I don't know. 
I haven't thought of that. So it's it's some some very small division of a second of time. Correct. All right, I got the answer. Let me just say. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. Let me just say this, Bob. I'll be back in a zeptosecond. <laughs> a zeptosecond. How long is that? Scientists have measured the world's smallest unit of time, and it's called the zeptosecond. It's a trillionth of a billionth of a second. That's a decimal point followed by 20 zeros. Holy cow. And a one. Okay. <laughs> and a one, of course. Well, you have to have a one. You have to have a number at the, at the end there. At the very end. Absolutely. Yeah. It was recorded by a group of scientists in Germany. They measured how long it takes for a photon to cross a hydrogen molecule around 247 zeptoseconds. And that made this measurement the shortest time span ever to have been successfully recorded. <laughs> I'm sure that's something the mass observation diarists <laughs> have seen many times. Okay. 247 zeptoseconds. Well, uh, that's not even a second <sighs> then, you know. Okay, go ahead, Bob. All right, I've got one here. You talked about science. When UCLA researchers were looking into how to make safer helmets for football players, motorcyclists, and race car drivers, what animal did they consult? They had to do some research. They already had hard helmets, but oh, they wanted the to make them safer. Safer. What animal? The turtle. The no, tortoise. No, not turtles. No. Shells, you know, protective shells. Well, this one makes more sense, Marsh. I know you want to try to make lobster. that. You want to justify a that? Lobster. No, not a lobster. <laughs> it's hard to crack those damn shells. All right, what? Woodpecker. Because <laughs> the scientists wondered how woodpeckers avoided getting headaches with all the knocking and tapping, and they found out the woodpecker's brain is tightly packed with very little fluid surrounding it. That makes it difficult for shock to be transmitted. Also, the woodpecker tightens its head and neck muscles when it taps. So they recommended light, tight-fitting helmets with a spongy layer under the outer shell, as well as exercise programs to strengthen neck and shoulder muscles. So the woodpecker improved football, your favorite game. That, that protects our little Aaron Rodgers' head, doesn't yes, that's it? That's right. That's okay with me. All right, Bob. The United States is the 11th richest country in the world per capita as of 2020. It's like around $65,000 based on GDP. Okay. Right? per capita. So uh, we're 11th. Can you name any of the ones that are ahead of us? So this is the, what was the metric again? The wealthiest country per capita? Yeah, the richest country in the world per capita okay. as of now. All right. So what countries would You don't have... have to do them in order. Just give me any you can you think. I'll let you know if they're in the top 10. I'm going to ask you if China is in the top 10. No. Right? No, because they've grown their middle class tremendously. Yeah, but not yet. Okay. So it would be European countries primarily, like Germany? I that, would think Germany uh, would be number two. Nope. Great Britain. Nope. France. Nope. And and Italy. So those are the. Thank you for the answer. That's all right. Germany, France, Italy, and you the got Great it Britain. All wrong. Okay. I'll, I'll just name the top ten in oh, order. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Qatar. That's that's number one. I thought that was something you eat. Yeah. Oh, that's tartar. Okay. Qatar. Oh, yeah. Q U A T A R. Yeah. Okay. You said Tatar. Yeah. And it's more than twice our 65,000. So it's 132,000 per capita. So it's a small population of rich people. Yeah. Well, top countries tend to be very small and have lucrative natural resources uh, like oil or something fun like gambling. So here, <laughs> so after Qatar, you have Macau, I believe, which is all gambling. Yes. Luxembourg, Singapore, Ireland, Brunei. Then after that is Norway. 
United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, and Switzerland. That's interesting. They're all ahead of us. They're all none of them are very big, but they're all richer than us in terms of per capita wealth by yeah. individuals. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, and we're eleventh. <laughs> so we didn't make the top 10. <laughs> All right. Marcia, 2021 is the 50th anniversary of several momentous events back in 1971. Now, I'm going to give you some clues for each one, and you tell me what happened in 1971. That is something everybody goes, oh, that's, that was 50 years ago. I didn't know that. Okay. Number one, Henry Kissinger took a secret trip. Where to, did he go? He went to China. That's exactly right. President Nixon and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger had been trying to think of a way to get a counterweight to uh, Russia, Russia's power in the world. And they thought, you know, let's see if we can open up China. We didn't have any relations with him at all. And so he made that secret trip in July of 1971. And then Nixon went to China the following year. And that opened up 50 years of trade and travel between the U.S. and China. There are several other things that happened that year, and I'll return to those. I thought you'd have another one. Okay. What did the FCC do in 1971 that changed the way you communicate? The FCC made a decision. Oh, was this uh, something on the radio stations that they... No? No, no this is another broadcasting form of, television? Another, no, another form of communication. Radio? In your home. In everybody home. has... Everybody has a telephone. It was... Def- oh, they broke up the monopoly? The first step towards breaking up Yeah. AT&T. They gave a small telephone company permission to start using AT&T's infrastructure. Do you remember the name of that little company? Bell? It's not with us today. It's, uh, I don't know. It's been subsumed. MCI. Really? Yeah, remember MCI? That yeah, was a small company. They, uh, they, Their focus was opening up long distance, and their founder, William McGowan, he raised $110 million. That was considered a huge startup fund okay. at the time. Well, and he spent 10 years fighting in courts, and eventually in 1980, they broke up AT&T, and MCI had access to switch network connections because all of the uh, long distance was extravagantly priced. Oh, remember it that? sure was. I remember that. It was, a, it was a good thing. So that led to everything we had today, new phone technology, software, Internet calls, texting, video calls. <laughs> and let's take a break. We'll be back. You're listening to Trivia on the Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Okay, we're back, Bob and Marsha Smith and the off-ramp. Okay, I've got a question for you. A new kingdom came to power in 1971, and millions of us have visited it. A new kingdom came to power in 1971. It's called the Magic Kingdom, Marsha. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, 50 years ago was Uh, when Disney World opened. You know how many people came the first day? A lot. 10,000 people. Oh, really? Yeah, they were expecting 200,000. Oh, I know why that is, because everyone thought it would be too many people there, so nobody came. They thought it would be huge. Yeah. And it wasn't. It perked up later in the week, as I recall. Disney used a half a dozen shell companies to anonymously buy up the land they needed. How many acres was originally bought? Oh, lots. Yeah. 27,000 acres. Yeah. And the big difference between Disneyland and Disney World is... Was acres. Well, yeah, but what he had in it, it was not just a theme amusement park. He uh, he created the City of Tomorrow, which was yeah. Epcot. Epcot. Animal Kingdom theme park, Hollywood Studios, and uh, plus resort amenities on site, you know, yeah. hotels on site. Because Disney was so upset that uh, all these cheap hotels came up around yeah. Disneyland. And then, of course, the monorail transportation, nightclubs and all that. So that's a, that set you off an any, entertainment revolution. You know what? what is the largest Lego structure ever created in the world? 
<laughs> wasn't the U.S. Capitol, wasn't it? N- no, that was a long time ago. No, we saw one of those recently. Yeah, it was a year they, or so they ago. bring them to the malls and yeah, stuff. Yeah, huge and beautiful. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. What was the biggest it's, one? It's a 16-foot replica of an Egyptian king using 200,000 pieces, individual pieces, and weighing more than a ton. A king? A pharaoh, yeah. What are you talking about? Well, this is a Lego Egyptian pharaoh replica. It's an Egyptian king that is 16 feet tall. Okay, wow. That's a lot of that's a yeah. lot of Legos. Well, it weighs more than a ton. So Good it's Lord. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of big structures made out of Legos. See, I thought it would be a, a a building or something, not a person. Yeah, and there are a lot. I was and I could not for the life of me find out where this is. But it's more than a ton, so it's not going anywhere for a while. I have another American history question about coins. Why is the Indian head penny misnamed? The Indian head penny. There's an Indian on it, though, isn't it? Not the original one. Not the Because I used to have Indian heads. But uh, I don't know, Bob, why. The first one was misnamed when in 1859 the mints engraver James Longacre modeled a bust of Liberty wearing a feather bonnet for the one-cent piece. And from the beginning, people mistook the Liberty head for an Indian head. Oh. And that's how the misnamed Indian head, Penny, was born. But then they made pennies. Eventually they did. Oh, but, but originally they it, didn't. Yeah, it was misnamed. I'll be darned. Who knew? Okay. I knew. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I asked okay. the question. Okay, Bob. What and where is the longest continuing archaeological excavation? Oh, is it Pompeii? Yes, because that was first discovered in the 1830s or something no, like that? the excavation began in 1763. Wow, it's been that long. The Roman city of Pompeii is located south of Naples in Italy, mm-hmm. and it was buried under volcanic ash and pumice when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 CE. And so in 1748... A full-scale excavation began under Spain's King Charles III. Under Spain? Yeah. Interesting. Pompeii was formally identified in 1763, and work on the site continues to, to this, this day. day. They're wow. still finding history there every 300 day. 300-some-odd years, almost. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. What was the original purpose of the Rubik's Cube? I think a Russian guy invented that. I thought it was just supposed to be a toy. Wasn't it just a toy, or was it meant to be something else? It was meant to be something else. What was it meant to be, Marsh? In 1980, Rubik's Cube became a worldwide craze. Mm -hmm. But its Hungarian inventor, Professor Erno Rubik, had created the cube as a math aid for his students. Oh, really? He used it as a tool, a teaching tool. But after realizing the cube's potential as a toy, he noticed the kids playing with it a lot. He sold two million in Hungary alone before introducing it to the West, making him the communist world's first self-made millionaire. (laughs) First self-made millionaire in the communist world. Yep. And the Rubik's Cube, in case you're wondering, or we're counting them, has more than 43 quintillion configurations. Really? Yeah. That many possibilities. Yeah. No wonder it was a good tool for teaching math. Yeah, I saw a picture the other day. There's this uh, like Rubik's Cube club or something, and they all solve it within, you know, so many seconds. Oh, I hate those kids. <laughs> <laughs> you were one of those. No, kids. I wasn't. I know I was not one of those kids. Okay. Uh, the nerdy uh, math or science kids, I was not one of those. I was more of a liberal arts type. 
I was a nerdy, annoying liberal arts type. Uh, and still are. The kid who knows. Uh, that yeah, was in 1862, yeah, yeah, sir. Yeah, yeah, you still are, honey. What? Okay. What? Go ahead. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> okay, Marsh, and a sports question from the Sports Authority, Bob Smith. <laughs> All right. In golf, where did the term caddy come from? Well, I don't know. Were there were there spouses on the side talking bad about their competitors? <laughs> they call oh, you cad. Yeah. <laughs> no, it actually goes from cadet. Okay, the term cadet. Yeah. Because when Mary, Queen of Scots, went to France as a young girl, Louis, the King of France, learned that she loved the Scots game of golf. So he had the first golf course outside of Scotland built for her enjoyment. And to make sure she was properly chaperoned and guarded while she played, he hired cadets from a military school to accompany her. Oh, really? She liked that a lot. It was a girl who had the first caddy. Yeah, so when she returned to Scotland, she took the practice with her, and in French, the word cadet is pronounced cadet. Uh Uh-huh. And the Scots changed it to caddy. So that's where it comes from. That is so cool. That is very cool. Okay. Does planet Earth, Bob, have any land not owned by some country? Yes, I think Antarctica is not owned, and so the South Pole and the North Pole, neither one are owned by a country. Am I right? That's right, Bob. Nobody owns Antarctica. In 1957, 12 countries signed an agreement guaranteeing that the continent would not be exploited for militarization or exploitation. That's where the South Pole is, right? That's the Antarctica. It was considered kind of worthless for a long time before they realized there are, apparently it's pretty rich in resources below, but it was always so difficult to get to. Yeah. As for the Arctic, it's an ocean covered by a thin layer of ice and surrounded by land. So there's no way you can uh, can claim claim, (laughs) claim the ice. Okay. All right. Good. That's good. That's, That's a good explanation. All right, I've got two more things that occurred in 1971, 50 years ago. Okay, I like those. A chip was introduced in 1971. That changed modern life. What was it? Microchip. That's exactly right. It was the microchip, the Intel 4004 chip. It was the first microprocessor, which is essentially a computer on a chip. Now, the Intel 4004 had 2,300 transistors on one chip. Yeah. How about today? How many was it then? It was 2,300 transistors on a little chip. Ten times that. Today's chips have more than 100 million transistors per square millimeter. That's How can you do that? It's basically photographic reproduction, reducing things down in size and then engraving it. 100 million transistors per square millimeter. And that allows us to carry devices in our pockets, of course, that have processing power by orders of magnitude more than the Apollo rockets and the ships that went up. Okay. But that was the first device that could receive instructions and act as the brains of a general purpose computer, and it launched our computer age. Uh In 1971, more Americans instantly got a say in the way their country was run. What happened 50 years ago this year that changed the way our country was run? What legislation was passed? Gosh. It's one of the amendments. Uh Uh-huh. The 26th Amendment. Uh Ring a bell? (laughs) It should. I don't know the 26th Amendment. It's the amendment that lowered... Oh, how soon you forget. Yeah. (laughs) This was when you were young, too. It lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. Was that in 71? 1971, 50 years ago. And people today, certainly people our children's generation wouldn't realize this, but when we were growing up, you could be drafted into the military, fight, and die for your country, but you couldn't vote for the leaders who sent you there. Yeah, I forgot that completely. I was in a, a movement called the Love, L-U-V, Let Us Vote, and a friend of mine, Kent, Jack- yeah, Kent Jackman, and I went to high schools and gave talks 
urging our teenage uh, associates to uh, contact their congressmen and urge passage of this. So in the words of writer Daniel Case, 1971 was the perfect storm of innovation, experimentation, optimism, and growth. So many things happened 50 years ago. Okay, I'll finish up with uh, two quotes that I like. Okay. Okay. Unity without truth is no better than conspiracy. Oh, that's a good one. Isn't it? That's That's appropriate. It is. Could you read that again? Unity without truth is no better than conspiracy. Yeah. That was John Trapp from the 1600s. He was a religious commentator of his time. And what he said then holds true today for religion and politics. And I'll finish up with Harry Potter. Okay. All right. (laughs) And J.K. Rowling. We are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. And hopefully our Harry Potter kids out there got that message and will carry on in a better fashion. Perfect. That's great. Thank you. All right, Marcia. Marcia, you came up with a new term over the holidays that for anybody who oh. listens to our show and might <laughs> like it. You're a ramper. You're a ramper. <laughs> so to all you rampers out there who may be listening, thank you for being in our audience today. <laughs> I'm oh, Bob Smith. I, can I get t-shirts made now? There you go. <laughs> I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time for The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.